would you pray with me and then we'll get started on Psalm 16, which is page 290 in your Pew Bibles if you want to start turning there. Holy God, we are about to open your word, we are about to study your word, we are about to try to understand your word. And without you, your Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us, it's a futile, a futile act, a futile activity. So we just pray that you would guide us Listen, 
And you, I have the refuge, God. Well, what does that word refuge literally mean? Well, literally in the Hebrew, it means to be preserved, protected, or covered. But this is the distinction I want to make sure that we all understand here, because this is very important. When you talk about being preserved, covered, or protected, usually we immediately think of a defensive position. Like we're going to dig in, we're going to dive into a bunker, we're going to we're going we're to stay here and not venture out anywhere, and that way we'll be covered and protected, and, and it's a real defensive position. That is not the essence of this Hebrew word, uh, refuge. What he's talking about here is the fact that as he goes out, boldly living a life for God, boldly living his life according to God's purposes, for you and me today, boldly living as Christ calls us to do, we are entering the culture, we are entering the world as, as a representative of Christ, he gives us the refuge, the protection, the covering in order to be able to do that. This is an offensive refuge. You need to understand there is nothing defensive about this. There's nothing in this that is calling us to, to be um, a conservative, but rather it is calling us to go out. Um, Skip, um, Skip Moen, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, 8 says this uh, uh, of, of refuge. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And then in verse 2, David says this, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. This is actually the gospel. Apart from God, we have no power to be redeemed, let alone uh, live a redeemed life. God has to be involved in all of that, in our redemption and in living a redeemed life. We can't even do good apart from God. And I know this drives some people crazy. I can do good things apart from God. I don't need God motivating me to do something good. I can do good works. I can do good deeds. I am a good person, but Scripture is clear. Even if you do good, if it's not the fruit, if it's not the result, if it's not because of a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, God looks at those works as filthy rags. That's what He says. Apart from God, we have no good. We can do nothing good. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark, much of, of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark is about this very issue, about Jesus talking about how we think that we can do good by all of these outside works, but in fact, if your heart isn't aligned with God and in relationship with God, there's a huge problem there. There is a huge disconnect. And then in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. The results of what you do will be good. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do no thing. And then in verse 3, David says this, I delight in the saints. Now, who are the saints? The saints are those who are devoted to the glory of God. David delights in them, and we need to understand that this is actually a, a, a statement of community. It is one thing to delight in the Lord, and, and Scripture calls us to do that. And, and we should delight in the Lord. But that's not a complete picture. We are also called to delight in the community of God, in the people of God. For David, it was those who were determined to live for God's glory during his time. For us today, it would be brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would find those brothers and sisters in our local congregation, like Arcadia Redemption. Or we would find those brothers and sisters 
um, in other um, uh, connections that we have through Christ. And we should delight in those people as well. We should delight in the company of our, of our redemption community. We should be in our redemption communities delighting in the company of those people because they're going to sharpen us. They're going to encourage us. They're going to affirm us. They're also going to confront us and call us out when we need to. And so we have that vertical relationship with God that we delight in, but we also have this horizontal relationship with others that we delight in as well. And one of the reasons that David talks about this is because this psalm, Psalm 16, which is one of the greatest psalms, um, the scholars call this David's golden psalm. One scholar calls this the jewel of David, and he's written more than 70 of these things, and they say this is his golden psalm. Some of you love Psalm 23, and I understand that. I love it too. But Psalm 23 is, is, is really addressing a time when you feel content and safe and, and protected by God. Psalm 16 actually comes at a time of desperation for David when he feels like his enemies are coming, are closing in on him. That's why I like this psalm, because there are times when I feel like my enemies are closing in on me as well. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Your enemies are closing in on you? And those can be physical, personal enemies who are closing in on you, but it can also be your circumstances. Have you ever felt like your circumstances are closing in on you and they're your enemies? Maybe something at work is going wrong, uh, a particular um, uh, situation at school isn't going well, and those enemies are closing in on you. This is what David is feeling right now. He is feeling like, like uh, his enemies are closing in on him. So he's crying out in desperation. This psalm is a lament. He's crying out in desperation. He's crying out. One scholar says, this is David crying out for God's personal involvement in his crisis. When you have a crisis, wouldn't you like to know that God is personally involved in it? Wouldn't you like to know that? Well, it's okay to cry out that way, and this psalm is definitely crying out for that. And this particular verse, verse 3, where he says, I delight in the saints, is a part of that. David knows that when he's in crisis, it's not only God that he needs to cry out to and have confidence in that he's going to rescue him, but he also needs to, he also knows that he needs to be in that community of saints who are going to be surrounding him with love and protection and, and confrontation sometimes as needed. So he knows that it's both God and it is also this community that he is in. And I hope that you have that for yourself as well. When David cries out in this psalm, he is crying out in desperation, but there is an air of confidence about it. You too can cry out to God in confidence that he will be involved in your crisis, but also be involved in the community of the saints as well. Cry out to them as well. Delight in them. Be helped by them. And then in verse 4, David says, The sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. We're going we're gonna to camp on this for a few minutes. Sorrows of those who run after other gods will be multiplied. This is really critical. This idea of thinking that you can look elsewhere than to God for satisfaction, completeness, completeness, uh, completion, fulfillment, or contentment. This is David's refutation of that. He's in this verse he refutes it. And he is speaking from personal experience. David has run after other gods. Some of you know exactly the gods that he's run after. He's run after the god of wealth. He's run after the god of power. He's run after the god of status. He's run after the god of sex. He has run after other gods. And all it did was take the sorrows which generated him running after those other 
It didn't solve those sorrows. It only multiplied those sorrows. His sorrows became multiplied by not looking to God as he is in this psalm, but by rather looking to these other gods. So he is speaking from personal experience here. And all of us have sorrows, right? Can I get an amen on that? We all have sorrows, right? And this is part of what drives us to go after these other gods. And, and this sorrow, the sorrows that we have are often part of that, that indescribable, undefinable feeling that we have that, that something just isn't quite right that I mentioned earlier. But the irony and tragedy is that when we run after these other gods, rather than soothing our sorrows, we multiply them. Now, why do we run after these other gods and why do they multiply our sorrows? I'm just going to ramble here for a few minutes, okay? I asked this question of a number of people this week and got some great answers. One person, I think this is the definitive answer. There are other answers as well, but I think this is the definitive answer. He said this, false gods or other gods make promises that they cannot keep. These other gods are making promises to you that life is going to be grand if you run after them, but ultimately they cannot keep their promise. Their promise is unsustainable. And when the promise is broken, or when you finally realize that the promise is broken, or that it's never going to be kept in the first place, that's when the sorrows begin to multiply. You have the original sorrow that caused you to go after the God, then you have all these other sorrows because the promise got broken. There's a pastor and author in Seattle named Mark Driscoll, and a lot of you guys know who he is and follow him. Uh, he talks about this in terms of what he calls functional hells and functional saviors. He says that all of us live our lives with these little pockets of, of what we would describe as hell in our life, functional hell. It's not the real hell, but it's a, it's a temporary circumstantial hell of our life. And, and we want to get out of that little functional temporary circumstantial hell. And so what we'll do is we'll look for a functional savior that will deliver us from that. And we follow the promises of these little functional saviors. These are not eternal saviors. These are not eternal hells. They're just... Uh, a circumstantial hells that we want to get delivered from. So some of the ones that he used, for instance, let's say, okay, let's say you're really out of shape, okay? You're not in high school anymore when you could eat whatever you wanted and do whatever you wanted and, and still fit into the 30-inch jeans or whatever it is. And now you're in your 20s or 30s and it's just gone south, okay? And this has become a sort of hell for you. It's a temporary hell, but it's become a sort of hell for you. And so now you're looking for a savior, a deliverer from this little temporary hell. Well, along comes LA Fitness and their marketing genius. And they tell you that if you join LA Fitness for $30 or $40 a month and you get a personal trainer and you come once a week for five minutes, you are going to look like you used to. And all right, now that's an exaggeration, but you get my idea. Well, let me tell you something. LA Fitness cannot deliver on that promise the way you want it to. And by the way, I'm not bagging on L.A. Fitness. I like L.A. Fitness. I'm a member of L.A. Fitness. I appreciate L.A. Fitness. But I'm not looking to L.A. Fitness to be a savior. They just have workout equipment that I don't have around my house. That's all. And I like to use it. But you, you, you understand that the way they present it, though, is that this is going to somehow save you from this. Let me, let me tell you something. I got a little flack on this this morning, but I think I'm right about this. God is not that concerned with your shape, your physical shape. He really isn't. Now, I know the body is a temple, and you've got to respect it and take care of it. I'm with you on that. But I will tell you that if you're in wonderful shape, if you look like these Olympic athletes, you've, you've got the washboard stomach, and, and you've got the guns, and all you look like that, but you don't know God, you're in big trouble. God would rather you be in relationship 
out of shape physically than in shape physically and not know him. That's the most important thing. Okay? So LA Fitness is great, but it's not going to save you. Okay? It's not going to deliver you the way you, you want it to. Here's, here's another functional help for some of you. And I get this. I understand it. It's easy for me to say. I've been married almost 25 years. Some of you are single and you're like, I, I just, I just, I want a romantic partner so bad. I'm lonely. I'm tired of this. Why isn't God bringing this romantic partner into my life? And so you start looking at your functional hell. So you start looking around for those functional saviors. And pretty soon, ChristianMingle.com and Match.com and eHarmony.com and I'm desperate for anyone.com. Those are <laughs> By the way, please, please hear me on this. Those of you who buy the promise that anyone is better than no one, don't buy that promise. I am telling you, anyone is not better than no one. Be discerning. Hold out. Be patient. Trust God. I'm telling you, do not look up. And by the way, again, if you're looking for salvation in a spouse, off to some of the married people. <laughs> there you go. Their functional hell is marriage. <laughs> We're just never happy. Okay? This is the whole point, though. The whole point is to set you up to understand that it's the relationship of, with God and His goodness that is the ultimate way to find completion and fulfillment. And there's nothing wrong with the harmony and match and all that stuff. If that's your shtick and you're discerning and you want to do that, just, just don't look for it to do something that it really can't. All right, one more. You're lacking status. You just feel like nobody's giving you enough respect. You lack a little bit of status, okay? So what you do, you go out and you buy a new car. But you need to understand that those of you who have bought new cars, you know this. They get old really fast. And pretty soon they begin to smell like you instead of smelling like new. And, and new cars get peed, and, and it's a mess. And then you're obsessing about, oh, there's a stop there. I get back. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. They make, and again, these are circumstantial and temporary. But we spend so much time running after these other little gods and ignoring the big god, the one true god, in, in order to have our... Um, satisfaction. Anyway, broken promises. Another person said this. I'll go through these other ones a little bit more quickly. But they're important. Another person says this. The reason why we run out of, uh, after other gods is because we're so self-absorbed. We become so focused on ourselves that the only person we go to for counsel, for wisdom, for advice, is ourselves. And we only have one perspective. And that perspective is always a self-interested perspective. The worst decisions I have ever made have been out of emotion and out of only counseling with myself. And the reason is because I am very good at self-deception. If I don't ask anybody else, and by the way, I'm this is how dark my heart is. If I want to do something and I've counseled with myself and I like the plan that I've tracked out, and I know that if I ask a couple of other people, they may not like that plan, but I really like my plan, I will specifically avoid asking them. Because I don't want to hear how stupid I am. I don't want to do what I want to do. That's self-absorption. And so I run after other gods when I'm self-absorbed. Also, here's another one. Not dying to myself. The Christian life 
is, in fact, death and resurrection. One scholar says it this way. The metaphor of Christian life is death and resurrection, not mild reform. The Christian life is not you and I just trying to clean ourselves up a little bit and do a little bit better and trying a little bit harder. No, it is death. It is dying to self. And then picking up our cross and following Jesus. That is the Christian life. It's death and resurrection. And so when we don't die to ourselves, we run after other gods. Also, uh, for me again, uh, a lack of a lack of thankfulness and gratitude will lead me to follow after other gods and chase other gods. God has given me so much. He's given me. I don't even lie. It's just it's really good, and it's just it's awful that there are times that I sit in a mud puddle, metaphorically going, eh, God isn't taking care of me. He's given me so much. I have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for. And when I have this attitude that, again, is bent in on myself and not grateful and thankful, I tend to look elsewhere for satisfaction. And it just doesn't work. We were in the preaching collective a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, this passage. And I was so excited that, that uh, Luke picked Psalm 16 to do uh, this week. It was great. But we were talking about how what happens is, this is a little bit of a metaphor, but what happens is we look at these other gods and, and I don't know, we, it's, like, it's like they're sugary and sweet and there's some flaky pastry and there's some, some whipped cream. It's, it's like these other gods are Twinkies. So we chase after them. And even if you're not a big Twinkie fan, you know, you've bitten into that first Twinkie. That first bite of a Twinkie is still pretty good, even if you're not a fan. Well, 
We are so desperate for satisfaction that we will start drinking that salt water, whatever our salt water is. And even, even when we realize that it's not thoroughly satisfying us, we will think that the answer is to just go and get more. We do that all the time. Uh, Matt Chandler calls this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. You go into the cul-de-sac and you just start making left turns and you get stuck in there and you never get out. Even though there is a way out, you never take that right turn out of there. So you go into the, you go into the cul-de-sac of stupidity thinking, all right, money is going to satisfy me. I'm going to make $10 million. And you go in there and you, and you start and you make your $10 million and you got your $10 million and you're going, you know what, that really didn't fulfill me the way I thought it would. I, I think maybe $15 million would fulfill me the way I And so you just stay in that cul-de-sac. Let me tell you something. 10 million isn't going to satisfy you. 15 million isn't either. And neither is 20 or 30 or 40. It's salt water. We would do well to identify our other gods. It's interesting. Matthew Henry says this is really hard for us even as believers. He says believers are often slow towards the true Lord. Unbelievers hasten after other gods. They run like madmen while we creep like snails. Nevertheless, we still creep like snails even though we have the truth of who the real God is. So these false gods are just going to multiply our sorrows. We have sorrows, I get that. We want them satisfied, we want them fixed, but these other gods are not where we're going to find satisfaction of that. Here's what David says is the answer, verses 5 and 6. These verses are about contentment. These verses are about satisfaction. These verses are about fulfillment and where to look for it. And he tells you right through these two verses. It's in the Lord. It's in God. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There are five metaphors here that David talks about how he finds his contentment in the Lord. The first one there is that he is, the Lord is his chosen portion. What that's talking about there is a metaphor of food. You ever gone to somebody's house and had a meal and you weren't quite satisfied? Or maybe you went to a restaurant and you had a meal and you weren't quite satisfied? The portion wasn't right, it wasn't cooked well, it didn't taste the way you wanted it to, whatever it is, they didn't serve you what you wanted, whatever it is, the portion didn't satisfy you. God is saying, that, uh, David is saying that with God, this never happens with him. The portion that God serves him always satisfies him. And it reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave his son up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Because God is good. And then David says, my cup. My cup. He is, God is my cup. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, every king always had this royal cup that signified his status and his authority and his power as king. It was, a, it was very iconic. It was a lot of symbolism with that cup. David had one of those cups. He had a king's cup. You know, you have it there. It tells everybody, watch out, I'm the king. David says, that cup doesn't mean anything to you. God is my cup. I don't put any faith or trust in that physical cup there, but God is my real and then he says, you hold my lot. You, you take care of my lot. This, this is actually a real estate metaphor. David is, David is talking about how um, when, whenever, back then, whenever you, you rented real estate or a lot from a landlord, as the tenant, it was your job to maintain that lot. It was your job to take care of it, to keep up the work on that lot. 
David is saying, no, 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 God takes care of my lot. And the metaphor here is that David is the lot. And God takes care of him. David can't take care of himself under his own power, and neither can you and I. It's only by the power of the resurrected Jesus that we're able to do that. And then he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is David talking about how that lot that God has given him, that piece of real estate, those border lines, wherever those, those boundary lines on his lot are, he's happy with them. He's not sitting there wishing he had another four acres here or another six acres here, or I wish I had that easement over there. He says, I'm happy with where those lines have fallen. He's content with what God has given him. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned the secret to being content. Would you like to know the secret of being content? Would you like to be content? Well, Paul knows the secret of being content. And he tells us that secret in Philippians chapter 4. For anybody who wants to know. He says, listen, I know what it's like to live with a lot and have a lot of money. I know what it's like to be broke, to be destitute. I know what it's like to have great circumstances in my life, and I know what it's like to have lousy circumstances in crisis. He says, but no matter what circumstance I'm in, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, I know how to be content in either of those circumstances. I am Mr. Even Keel through all of those circumstances. I can do all things through him, Christ Jesus, who gives me strength. In other words, he says, my contentment is in him and what he has given me, whether it's a lot or a little, and not in what I think I deserve or should have or want to have in addition. And then, and then David says, God has given me a beautiful inheritance. A beautiful inheritance. This is family language. This is adoption language. David knows that he has been adopted by God, that he is a child of God, that he is God's own. And therefore, as a result, he knows that he is the recipient of an inheritance from God. In, in a couple of weeks, after we're done with this series and we get through Labor Day, we're going to start a 14-week walk through the book of 1 Peter, verse by verse through 1 Peter. And in chapter 1, Peter says that as a result of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrected life, which is imputed to us, as a result of that, we have this inheritance, this permanent, eternal inheritance that will never spoil or fade. This is family talk. We are part of the family of God. And this is, being, this is all about how God is the God who satisfies. So that we never have to look elsewhere for fulfillment. That indefinable, indescribable desire that we have, that yearning, is completed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus giving us life. Jesus giving us the living water. Yet we run after these other gods. Like Matthew Henry said, even those of us who are believers are slow to run after the real God. We're still looking for another answer, an easier answer. Why do we spend so much time doing that? Actually, it's pretty simple. Philosophers have told us, and this, this squares with, with um, biblical teaching as well, that essentially, as, as human beings, we have three categories of needs or longings. The first one is the physical need. We all have physical needs. So we get hungry, that need is satisfied temporarily by food. We're naked, that need is satisfied by clothing. We get ill, that need is satisfied by medicine or, or rest. So we have physical needs, and we have relational needs. And our relational needs can get met and satisfied in some ways through our family and our friends and our 
and maybe if we're married, a spouse. Uh, any one of those things alone isn't quite enough. We need them all, and we need the, the faith community gathered around us as well, but we have those relational needs as well, and we seek after those. We seek after those physical satisfactions and the relational satisfaction, but then there's that third longing or need. It's called a crucial longing. Pascal designed, uh, described it this way. It's a God-shaped vacuum in your soul. And because it's God-shaped, there's only one thing that can fill that vacuum, and that would be not a trick question. God. But our problem is, is that, that, that God-shaped vacuum is th that's creating this longing, this indescribable desire, this thing that's bigger than us that we can't really understand. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. What we do with that is we try to fill it with the first and second thing. We try to fill it with <coughs> physical stuff or relational stuff, horizontal relational stuff, and it doesn't fit. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. Only God can do that. So as we chase after these other gods, and they don't satisfy us. That's why. It, they're the wrong shape. They're the wrong size. They're the wrong substance. They are the wrong essence. And so we need to understand that this crucial need can only be filled with God. That's why we should take the desperation that we feel, this yearning that we feel, and we should turn it to Jesus rather than what seems so obvious to us, that sugary, twinky, saltwater false God, and turn to the true living God. God of fresh water. In verses 7 and 8, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God does give us counsel, and David blesses God for that. But you and I often struggle with God's counsel, don't we? See, we're okay with God's counsel, with what God's word says with what God's community tells us. We're okay with what God tells us in prayer as long as it affirms us and makes us feel good and is exactly what we want him to say. But when God's word tells us something contrary to what we want or when the community comes alongside of us and encourages us and confronts us that we're going down the wrong path, when prayer, in prayer, God says, I'm going to ask you to do the hard thing, the thing you don't want, and we say, Plan B, God, please, okay? We don't really care for God's counsel. Again, again, I'll cite Driscoll. Driscoll says it this way. Those of you who welcome Jesus in your life, do you still welcome you when he tells you something you don't want to hear? Do you still welcome Jesus when he says, that's not your best life for you. That's not the life that I have for you. Don't go down that path. Um, says to do this. I want to do that. How can I work this so that I can do what I want to do and still remain in God's favor? First of all, you don't understand the gospel if you're asking that question. But second of all, we have a problem with doing what God calls us to do when it doesn't line up with what we want to do. 
And so people will go to pastors to ask them, can I do this? You know why? Because if they can get it from a pastor that it's okay to con- do something contrary to God's word or God's will, then they can walk around and say, it's not my fault, it's theirs. So I have these conversations a lot. Early on in my ministry, this is years ago, I had a couple sit with me, and they wanted to do something that was clearly contrary to God's word. And I knew they were in a tough spot. I knew that they were in a bad place. I didn't want to be in their place. I knew they were suffering. And so, again, here's how I rationalized it. Out of compassion, I said, you know what? I, I can see your point, and I think it'll be okay if you go down that path this time. And besides that, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. So I gave them that permission. Contrary to God's word. And they went and did what they wanted to do. And here's the irony. They ended up being miserable because they did that. They would have been better off following God's word, even though that was they ended up miserable. And you could say that I committed pastoral malpractice by doing that. And that has haunted me ever since. I know God has forgiven me for that, but I don't ever want to forget it because I never want to do that again. As a pastor, I am called to stand behind, in front of, and beside God's word and look you right in the eye and tell you, even when you don't want to hear it, this is what God says you you're better off for it because he is good and he knows exactly what you need. So David takes counsel from him. But then David also says he takes counsel from his own heart at night. Isn't that interesting? Be careful of that. How many times do we get in trouble because we take the counsel of our heart? What we need to understand is that this heart of David that he's taking counsel from is not a heart that we think of where it's just the center of our emotions. The Hebrew word translated heart there is the core of his being. And it's a core of his being that has been bathed and soaked in God's word, God's prayer, and God's people. You can take counsel from the core of your being if it's all generated out of being, being bathed and soaked in the word of God. Conversation with God, which is what prayer is. It's talking and listening. And the community of God, surrounding yourself with people who love you and in Christ will call you to who you need to be and what you need to be. We should always view these things through God's lens, even when we're taking counsel from our own heart. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have the same mind in you. I know it's the word mind, different than heart, but it's the same idea. He says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, look at the reality of the world through the lens of how Jesus would look at it. Put on the mind of Christ when you begin to make decisions. Be bathed in the mind of Christ. This is a great action step for you today. Always set the Lord before you. Preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Remind yourself that God is for you, not against you. Remind yourself that God is good and he wants what's good for you. Preach that to yourself every single day. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. These things, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is just, 
whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, put these things in your mind and think about them always. Don't, don't think about these other gods. Don't think about this other stuff. Bathe your mind in what is good and true and just. Bathe your mind in the things of God. Last three verses. David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can't wait to get to that word, pleasures. Now verses 8 through 11 are actually quoted by Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Peter in chapter 2 when he preaches that fabulous sermon at Pentecost. And then Paul in chapter 13 when he's out planting churches and he preaches. Both of them quote these verses. And both of them interpret these four verses, I'm sorry, these three verses, these four verses as being about Jesus, the Messiah. They say these are messianic verses. And he says that the Messiah will not abandon his people to hell. If you're in Christ right now, if you have a relationship with him, you don't have to worry about going to hell. You, you, have, you have heaven in your sights. You have the new Jerusalem in your sights. Salvation is not just about living a redeemed and sanctified life, but it is also about living forever and ever, eternity in the new Jerusalem. That's good news. And even our flesh is, is happy about that. David said, my flesh is happy about that because my flesh is going to be redeemed as well. My flesh is 53 years old and it's tired and sore and I can't wait for it to be redeemed. It cries out. Just like in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says all of creation cries out because it's corrupt. All of creation cries out for redemption. And then David says, you lead me to the path of life. What is the path of life? Here it is. It's John 14, 6. Where Jesus looks at his disciples on the last night of his life and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the path to life. It is through one person and one person only. Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, and there are many other ways. I am the truth, and there are other truths, and you can find those other truths. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. There is only one life, and that is in in me. And if you still don't get it, then he says, and no one is able to, can come to the Father except through me. That is the path of life. That is the gospel. The fact that you and I, by our sin, are separated from God. He loved us so much that he sent his son here to earth 2,000 years ago to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to live a life of miracles and works, not because he was necessarily just trying to fix those people with their temporary problems there, but rather he was trying to get them to understand that he was the Savior, he was, he was God, he was the Messiah, that he was, his works were pointing to a thing greater than, their, than their, their problem being fixed. So he lived this life of salvation and works, and then they crucified him, and he died to pay for our sins, his blood atoning for our sins, washing away our sins, forgiving our sins, taking care of them. And then he was buried. And we need to understand that this part of it is really important. He was buried. They said he was dead. They certified that he was dead. They proclaimed that he was dead. He was Texas dead. He was dead. <laughs> and then three days later, he rose from the grave. He came busting out of that tomb, 
resurrected in victory over death to give you and I eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the reason the news is good is because God is good and he wants what's best for us and he wants to be in relationship with us. If you're here today and in a room this size with this many people, there are here people here who do not know Jesus. The Holy Spirit is calling for you right now. Not me. The Holy Spirit is calling for you right now. He wants to change your heart. Lead you to the path of life, which only comes through Jesus. And as a result, David says, by keeping the Lord always set before us, we have joy and pleasure. Our joy is always the result of God. Again, from Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. That's where our joy comes from, from a relationship with, with God. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. In the Lord. And he says there are also pleasures. Now, this pleasure thing is a big deal. Because there are a lot of Christians out there, a lot of non-Christians, a lot of people, period, who really believe that God is anti-pleasure. He's not. And yes, we are talking about affective sensory experiences here. Stuff that feels good. Ooh. To give us his pleasures. And living a life with him, we can have his pleasures. Pleasures are great if they come born of a relationship with him. And I will tell you, just like the, the satisfaction that we get from God, the permanent, eternal satisfaction that we get from chasing after him rather than false gods, the pleasures that we get from God are also permanent and lasting and better. Sometimes they take a little bit longer to percolate. God is a lot more about about crockpot than he is microwave. He's a lot more about quality than he is quantity. But the pleasures of God are much better than the pleasures of the world. And I'm not denying that the pleasures of the world can be good. I'm not denying that sin can be good and fun and can satisfy us momentarily. Schrader says it this way. If you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not sinning correctly. But the problem is, is that fun and that pleasure and that satisfaction only lasts for a season, for a moment. And then the sorrows come. I have a couple of examples of this, of this pleasure from joy that I want to share with you. One is, again, I'll just talk about this again. I know some of you get tired of this, but one of them is my marriage. Uh, in September, I will be married to Jack, and she to me. It's really symmetrical. Anyway, um, for 25 years. And I will tell you, we live in a culture that looks at that and says, that's boring, that's awful, that must be drudgery, that must be a hell. How can you do that? I'll tell you, it's not because Jackie and I are so special, it's because we understand that the biblical understanding of marriage, the, the biblical understanding of marriage, of permanence and monogamy, is the two of us coming together and seeking together holiness before God and not seeking our happiness in each other. We understand that, and therefore, the pleasures that have come from this marriage, I, I can't even begin to describe to you. I don't want anything else from this world. I don't. They're wonderful. And maybe this is too much information for you, but it's, it's physical, it's emotional, it's mental, and it's spiritual. It is the complete package. Again, not because marriage is so good, but because God is so good, and we look to him for our pleasure. And our anointing. 
But I will also tell you that this is, it's not, it's not just marriage. This marriage isn't what gives this. It's God. I have a very good friend who's a couple of years older than me. He's been single all of his life. He's been following Christ all of his life. And I'm telling you, even now, people keep trying to fix him up, and he doesn't want to be fixed up. And he has flat out told me, I find my pleasure in God and doing his work and his will as a single person without the encumbrances of all that romantic stuff. I am a, he is a true 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Christian. I live a better life for God unencumbered. I have this gift. God has granted me this gift, and in it I have pleasure. And he has lived for more than 50 years in this pleasure as a single person. Why? Because singleness is so wonderful? No. Because God is so good, and he finds his pleasure in him. And he's contented, he's happy, and he's satisfied. And he's not on eHarmony.com. He's not on any of it. I talk about this because I want this so badly for other people. Because I see the world chasing after other gods and multiplying their sorrows. And I know that there is, there is joy and pleasure in the one true God who is good. God satisfies us and completes us more deeply, more qualitatively, and eternally. Because he is good. That's the gospel. Come to Christ. If you're in Christ, lean into him even further. Let's pray and Sean and the guys will come and, and lead us. God, thank you for your word that's true. Thank you for your goodness by which we can live. We just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to just how good you are, that we would live lives in community with you and with others, that we would seek you, that we would die to ourselves, and that we would live lives of gratitude and thankfulness. God, we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name.